The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 4 of Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight, good friends, at long last, we kick off the Halloween season. As I'm sure it is for many of you, this is my favorite time of year, and I usually start setting up the house in, oh, mid-August? Late July? Maybe June sometimes? Regardless, it's a barrel of spooky laughs every year, and I can't wait to jump into this Halloween season with all of you. Tonight we have two spooky stories for you, and I hope that they bring a ghoulish grin to your wicked little faces. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Did I mention they were ad-free? Thank you for your support. And now, from author Thomas Riccardi, I give you Stolen Treats. Twilight started to creep across the sleepy suburban neighborhood as every manner of superhero, beast, and creature started to stalk the neighborhood. Each of these beasts performed a ritual of going up to the nearest house, ringing the doorbell, 
and uttering the three words that either delighted or disgusted the occupants within. Trick or treat! The children would hold out bags or plastic pumpkins to receive their treats as they would say thank you and move on to the next house. Some parents would accompany some of the children, but the older ones insisted that they would go out alone. They didn't want mom or dad cramping their style, as they had candy to collect from the various occupants that were in the neighborhood. One child, who had just turned 11, thought himself a tough character and dressed as a biker from a popular television show. As he rounded a corner onto a deserted street, he saw a solitary figure standing there in his way. Before starting in on the tough guy act, quipping lines from the show, he was startled by two other kids that seemed to come out of nowhere. He let out a shriek that rivaled those of some little girls as he ran for his life, dropping his bag of candy behind him. The trio looked at their new ill-gotten bounty as they started to laugh and joke with one another. Did you see the look on that kid's face? An older kid in a denim jacket shouted to his two friends, grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, a pudgy kid mumbled around a mouthful of candy. It's like he saw the devil or something. How many does that make, Stu? Six? Seven? A punk with a mohawk smiled as he unwrapped a candy bar, carefully licking his lips in anticipation. Mr. Denim Jacket smirked as he punched the punk in the shoulder. That last one makes eight, Ralphie. He narrowed his eyes as he snarled. I thought I told you never to call me that. The chubby kid laughed and slapped the punk on the back. Relax, dude. Remember, we're out here to snatch what we can and then vanish with our treats. Yeah, I guess you're right, stew. The punk grinned. The chubby kid shrugged. Dude, whatever. I smoked a good joint before we headed out, so no matter what you say or do, it's not going to phase me. Tommy peered into the sack that held the majority of their haul. No wonder why a lot of the good shit is gone. You're frickin' high and got the munchies for candy. Stu chuckled. Sorry, bud. I would have shared it, but I thought you two wanted to have a clear head. Tommy snarled and got in his face. Didn't your mother teach you how to share? Ralphie pushed himself between them. Will you two flippin' relax? Look, the night is still young, and there are more little kids who we can steal candy from. As they made their way to another neighborhood, they saw that the crowds here were starting to thin out, but there were more kids than adults here. Looking up and down the street, they saw lots of kids going from house to house. However, they also saw a problem. Most of the kids were accompanied by an adult or an older brother who looked as if they could take on the trio easily. As they scanned the streets for their next victim, they noticed a ten-year-old who was humming a Halloween song as he traipsed along in his costume. He was dressed from head to toe in baggy orange pajamas with stripes painted on them and a hood that sported triangle ears. Even his face had black stripes painted haphazardly across it as a yarn tiger tail dragged across the ground. Hey! Hey you! Stu called after the lad. 
He froze mid-step as he slowly turned around, eyes wide with fear. The three teenagers closed in on him as they saw him clutching a plastic bag that seemed to be bulging with treats. Ralph grinned at him. What you got there, kid? The tot shifted from foot to foot as he stammered, Treats? Treats for me. Tommy leaned in closer, which made the child more nervous. Well then, you won't mind giving your treats to us then. He quickly fished out a switchblade and flicked the blade open as the kid's eyes were as wide as saucers. Stu moved in closer as well. Come on, bud. If you share, we promise we won't hurt you. The youth felt cornered as his hands started to shake. He screamed, No! and bounded away fast from the teens. Stu growled as he looked at his friend. After him, guys. He probably has some great stuff if he's running. The three took off chasing the child through various neighborhoods as he continued to evade the trio at every twist and turn. He proved to be very slippery as he would cut through backyards going over and under fences. He would occasionally get caught on a branch, stumble and fall, or something else would happen. But he would never let go of the bag as he clutched it like a precious treasure. It got to a point that the trio considered quitting, but something happened with the lad when that happened. It was late in the day, and everyone had gone home. The suburbs gave way to an industrial area. As the tyke ran into a fenced yard, he realized that the door to the warehouse was locked, no matter how hard he twisted the door handle. The goons that had been chasing him stood three abreast, blocking the only exit out of the yard. You gave us quite a little chase there, little guy, Stu said between breaths. Stay back! You can't have my treats! Please! Ralphie sauntered up to him and tried to grab the treat bag out of his hands, but the kid had a tight grip on it. As the tug-of-war went on, the bag started to rip and spill its contents out onto the street. The teens were horrified as they noticed that there was a collection of body parts falling out of the bag instead of candy. A severed hand, entrails, and even a heart were some of the gruesome contents now splattered against the pavement. My... my treats! You ruined my treats! The kid screamed in an unearthly howl. The teens were about to run, but found their feet and ankles were grabbed by hands erupting from the asphalt. Bones and rotted flesh clawed at their feet and jeans as they kept them anchored to the spot. The kid now looked a bit different as the teens looked at him as if he wasn't the innocent and cute child that he once had been. Now he was a hideous beast with a long, spaded tail, razor-sharp claws, and sickly, green-glowing eyes. Licking his lips with a forked tongue, they could see his mouth was filled with razor-sharp teeth. "'Seeing as you ruined my treats,' he said, still in the same child's voice, "'I guess I'll have to take new ones. From you.' They all struggled against their bonds. However, 
it was no use as they were rooted to the spot. The child looked at the trio as he started pointing at each one of them in turn and repeating an old nursery rhyme. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch a tiger by the toe. When he finished, he pointed a clawed finger at Ralphie, and his monstrous grin grew wider. Oh, perfect! The person who ruined my treats is the first to give me new ones. The creature walked behind Ralphie and, without a word, leapt onto his back and sank his sharp teeth deep into his neck. The kid jerked his head back as an arc of crimson splattered onto the pavement. The teenager grasped at his throat, gurgling as he tried to stem the flow of blood, but to no avail. He slumped forward in a matter of seconds, hitting the asphalt with a resounding wet splat. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God! Stu started to sob. Tommy glared at the kid. Come on, freak! He fished out his switchblade and flicked it open. Let me go, and let's dance. If I win, you can have Ralphie's body and we get to go home. Deal? Deal. Grinning wide, the kid licked his lips clean of blood with his forked tongue. He snapped his fingers, and the hands holding Tommy disappeared back into the asphalt. Without a second of hesitation, Tommy rushed forward, slashing at the kid wildly. Tommy dropped back in a defensive stance, looking this monster over as he skittered along the ground on all fours. This threw the teen off as the monster fainted right and then struck out with his left hand, raking his claws against Tommy's leg. Bellowing in pain, Tommy slashed in a wide arc, overextending himself as the kid got in a few good swipes with his claws. He scored two hits on the kid's arms, but this only seemed to make him laugh. Tommy was losing blood fast, and with every failed strike, he would receive more and more slashes. The kid smirked as he looked up at him as he swayed, barely staying on his feet. That all you got? Screw you, he managed to croak out. The tyke grinned as he sauntered up to him and pushed him over as he lost his balance and fell backward. Tommy's skull cracked against the pavement. His whole body twitched once and then died. Stu's sobs turned into shouts and cries for help as the kid smirked at the lone remaining teenager. Oh, please, stop. There's no one around for miles as everyone's gone home for the holiday. Stu then witnessed the creature starting to desecrate his friends as he bit off their hands, sliced open their bellies, and selected from choice parts and plucked out their eyes and tongues. Stuffing the treats back into his bags, he turned around to leave, but then looked at Stu. He noticed the switchblade on the pavement as he flicked the blade closed and tossed it to him. Stu caught it reflexively as the creature smiled wide at him. Good boy. Before the creature left the yard, he pulled a fire alarm that was on a nearby wall and started reverting back to his normal self. Before he left the yard, he looked back at Stu 
who was just standing there. He was no longer rooted to the spot by those ghastly hands, but he felt as if he couldn't move as the sirens grew louder in the distance. As the police and fire crews moved in on the grisly scene, no one noticed the small child dressed up as a tiger and holding a swollen bag of treats as he hummed a Halloween tune. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. You've been listening to Stolen Treats by Thomas Riccardi. Our final tale of the night may be particularly upsetting to some. As a warning, this story features subject matter related to pregnancy and infant loss and disability. So if you're sensitive to those issues, this may not be for you. And you know what? That's okay. We'll have lots more horror to come from all different themes and aspects of life. What's scary fun for some may be too much for others, and we are totally respectful of that. In this story, Aaron Sibley's little brother was born without a brain. Few infants survive hollow anencephaly beyond a few months, but Malachi had just enough of a brainstem to control basic bodily functions and survive beyond any expectations. Now, his brother Aaron is caring for him, and facing personal and financial disaster, he reluctantly accepts the monetary offer of a Mr. Anton Slay to try a rather unconventional cure for his sibling's condition. Without further ado, I present to you, from author Charles Williams, The Scarecrow. Aaron Sibley's little brother didn't have a brain in his head. While it may be true that every person who is not an only child has harbored that feeling about a sibling at some point during their life, in Aaron's case, it was a medical fact. Malachi Sibley was born with a condition called hollow anencephaly. 
This ungodly name means no in-head. The younger brother's brain had entirely failed to form except for the brainstem. Most babies with this birth defect died at birth or only survived a few hours, but Malachi had managed to make it to age 13. This miraculous achievement could be attributed to the saintly efforts of the late Maggie Sibley, the boy's mother. She had refused to accept the doctor's advice to let nature take its course and devoted her life to prolonging the child's existence through round-the-clock care and daily prayers at the altar of St. Mary's one block away. Unfortunately, Maggie's schedule left very little time for her husband and eldest son. Ed Sibley, never a candidate for Father of the Year, didn't stick around for long after Malachi came into the world. Maggie obsessively worked herself to death, taking care of the aberration she had brought into the world. She would never be able to atone for the imagined sin which had caused so much misery. Aaron was now the only one left to care for his brother with no brain. Malachi had been a late-life baby, an accident in every sense. Aaron was a sophomore in high school when Maggie informed him that she was pregnant. She was a devout Catholic, so there was never really a choice about keeping the baby. Ed was a mean drunk when he wasn't engaged in some menial labor, his main concern being how much money the baby would take away from his booze and gambling pockets. There's no way that maggot came from my loins, he had bellowed upon seeing his new son for the first time. Malachi had just enough of a brainstem to take care of automatic functions such as breathing and maintaining blood pressure, but he would never be able to remember anything or speak, much less develop a personality. He required constant care and would never be able to express love or gratitude. Maggie, however, had seen meaning and consciousness in his every reflexive movement. Aaron had been in the delivery room when Malachi was born. Ed, either by inebriated circumstance or by design, managed to be absent from the blessed event. Maggie had neglected prenatal care because of the family's financial constraints, so the first indication that something was amiss came in the form of an involuntary obscenity uttered by one of the obstetric nurses as the baby's grotesquely flattened head emerged from its mother's womb. Holy fucking mother of Christ! Aaron's first thought was that his mother was giving birth to a cabbage patch kid. The realization that something was terribly wrong quickly filled the birthing room. There was no happy celebration at the appearance of this new arrival. Only the hushed tones and frantic gestures of medical personnel dealing with something horrific. Aaron's life as a high school student changed abruptly with this new monstrous addition to the family. The brainless boy's presence in the room down the hall, hooked up to his feeding tube, and the beeping monitoring machines eventually eliminated visits from his friends and destroyed the prospects for any social life. One of the few things he could still enjoy was the escape offered by school, especially his English class. Mr. Corum, Aaron's favorite high school teacher, had taught his students to try to find something of themselves in the characters of great literature. Don't just create a one-dimensional mental picture of the characters in a classic story. 
Become the dramatis persona. Approach your reading like a student from the actor's studio immersing themselves in the method. If the author is sketchy about the protagonist's motivation and background, use your experiences to fill in the blanks. What event or tragedy in your life would cause you to behave as these characters do? You have to dig deeper, guys. The long-haired, bespectacled instructor stressed that connecting in this way would give his students a greater understanding of the author's purpose and, by extension, might help them understand the roles they played in their real lives. Carl Mackin, the class smartass since elementary school, seized the opportunity to apply this lesson to Aaron's situation. Hey, Mr. C., how would that technique work for a book like The Wizard of Oz? A lot is going on in those stories, Carl. A lot of very interesting characters worth digging into. Why the sudden interest in that particular book? Well, I was just thinking that someone in this class could find meaning in the story of the Scarecrow. He's looking for a brain, right? Sound like anybody you know, Sibley? The class tittered just long enough for Aaron's pale face to burn bright red. Mr. Corum quieted them with his famous icy stare. The damage, however, had been done. Carl continued his harassment after class and started calling Aaron the Cowardly Lion because of his fear that people would find out about his freaky brother. Aaron had never considered himself a coward, but he cringed when asked questions about the creature living in his house. It didn't take long for other classmates to jump on Carl Mockin's bandwagon, and Aaron was an object of ridicule during his final two years at Murphy's Ferry High School. His mother's death forced Aaron to make a decision. Her last words had been to implore him to take care of his brother. Aaron could have interpreted her instructions broadly and let nature take its course, but he knew exactly what she really meant. He dropped out of college shortly after his mother's fatal heart attack, and her meager savings were used to pay for the funeral. The Murphy Bulletin featured a story on the family's predicament, and Aaron reached out for help through social media. The resulting donations dried up as soon as the story lost its steam. Through it all, Malachy remained on his bed, drool glistening and dripping from his partially open mouth, while his sightless eyes stared at the faded Winnie the Pooh wallpaper on the windowless wall in front of him. Aaron was leaning against the doorframe of Malachy's room when his cell phone joined the cacophony of life-sustaining noise. Hello? Hello. May I speak with Aaron Sibley, please? This is Aaron Sibley. Mr. Sibley, my name is Anton Slay. Let me begin by saying how sorry I am for the loss of your dear mother. Thank you, Mr. Slay. Were you a friend of Mom's? Not a friend, but I had the pleasure of speaking to your mother over the phone on several occasions. We discussed the possibility of me helping your brother achieve a better quality of life. Funny, she never mentioned you to me. Are you some kind of doctor? You must be familiar with my brother's condition. He doesn't have a brain, Mr. Slay. He's little more than a vegetable. There's no chance of improvement or any medical treatment which will change his situation. It's a miracle he survived this long. Well, 
Miracle is probably a poor choice of words. No, Mr. Sibley, I'm not a doctor in the traditional sense, although I consider myself to be a healer. Your mother was skeptical, too. I explained to her that my methods were rather unconventional. My approach is more metaphysical than therapeutic. That might have been a little off-putting to a religious person like your mom. What exactly did you suggest to mom? There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Remember that quote from Hamlet? Your story attracted my attention. I've been searching for just the right person to test my healing methods on. I believe I can use some rather archaic practices to restore your brother's spirit to his body. You do believe that everyone has a spirit, don't you, Mr. Sibley? Maybe you would prefer to call it a soul? Are you talking about some kind of magic or witchcraft? Those labels have become somewhat pejorative in today's world. I prefer to think of it as an alternative spirituality. I am prepared to pay you a tidy sum for the opportunity to help Malachi realize his full potential. After all, dear boy, what do you or your brother have to lose? How much are we talking about? Oh, I'd say a $5,000 first payment sounds about right, with more to come after our initial session if things turn out as I'm sure they will. Think of it as an exclusivity contract for the future services of your revivified brother. Why so generous, Mr. Slay? What do you hope to gain from all this? As I said before, the words magic and witchcraft have received a bad rap lately, thanks in large part to some rather nasty portrayals in movies and books. Stephen King is not my favorite author. I, and others with similar beliefs, want to reintroduce the world to sorcery's ancient positive effects. After all, traditional religion is experiencing a downward trend in the modern world, and people seem to be looking to superheroes for inspiration these days. Restoring your brother would be a true-life super-deed, to be sure. I might even become one of the heroes on CNN. Never underestimate the power of the positive press, young man. If I agree to this, it won't be because I buy into any of this crap, but because I need the money to take care of Malachi. I promised my mom. Of course, I understand. It's a lot to take in. However, when you meet your real brother for the first time, you'll realize you made the right decision. When do you propose to make all of this happen? Why, it can happen today if you like. I'm 15 minutes away and totally prepared, should you agree. Why not? As you said, what do I have to lose? Splendid, Mr. Sibley. I'll see you soon, and your life, and your brother, will never be the same. Just make sure you bring the money. I would prefer cash. I anticipated that. As the call ended, it occurred to Aaron that he was literally bringing the wizard to the Scarecrow in the search for a brain. Was he still the cowardly lion in this scenario, looking to someone else to take a difficult decision out of his hands? 
Aaron's mother had certainly been a match for Dorothy and her boundless optimism. He knew that his mother would not have been happy about his choice. After all, she must have turned Slay down. But his mother was gone, and it was now his call. Malachi was his burden, and he would live with the consequences. Fifteen minutes later, Anton Slay rang the doorbell. He appeared to be an occultist sent straight from central casting. He was well over six feet tall and dressed completely in black. He wore a silver pendant around his neck in the shape of a pentagram. His long, pierced ears carried small gold rings, and a Fu Manchu, arched eyebrows, and bald head made him look like Ming the Merciless. Aaron's immediate impression was that he was being set up, punked in the most tasteless practical joke imaginable. Ah, Mr. Sibley, so nice to make your acquaintance. Slay entered the foyer carrying a large black suitcase. Before we proceed any further, Mr. Slay, I need to see the money. $5,000 is, I believe, the price of admission? Of course, dear boy. Business first. Very prudent. The imposing figure placed his suitcase on the hall table and removed a bundle of 50 crisp $100 bills. Aaron thumbed through each one to make sure the amount was correct. You're a man of your word, Mr. Slay. Right this way. Aaron led the towering man through the living room and kitchen and into his brother's bedroom. Slay appraised the room and Malachi in his bed with the awe of a reverent pilgrim entering some grand cathedral. Oh, my precious boy. The world will soon be yours to enjoy, and we shall so enjoy you finally being with us. The wizard directed his words to Malachi and placed his suitcase beside the bed. He reached out to take the boy's limp hand. How long will this, uh, ceremony take? The ritual is quite brief, but it demands that there be no interruption once it has begun. You do get my meaning, don't you, Mr. Sibley? Belief in the power of what is about to take place is essential to its success. You must remain silent once we have started. You may not approach your brother or me during the right performance. I will explain each step of the process when it does not interfere with the incantation. Now, help me move your brother's bed as far out from the wall as the monitoring devices will allow. They moved the hospital bed near the center of the room, carefully navigating around the cords connected to the wall. Where do you want me to stand? By the door would be fine, Mr. Sibley. Just remember my instructions. Slay removed a black-handled knife from his case. This is called an athame. It represents fire and is the elemental tool I will use to initiate the ritual. Slay raised his left hand just above his head and used the knife to make a cut across his palm. Blood immediately began to drip down his arm as he walked slowly around the bed stepping carefully over the electrical cords and creating a narrow circle of crimson. When he returned to his starting place, he wrapped the hand with a piece of purple cloth from his suitcase and took out two red and two black candles. 
He carefully placed these at each quarter of the circle, alternating the color. The candles are placed in the north, south, east, and west positions. I will now light them and trace the sacred sigil in the air to call out to the Chosen One. Aaron fought the impulse to cry out when Anton Slay first pulled out the athame with a theatrical flourish. His panic subsided when it became clear that the knife was not intended for Malachi. He stared, transfixed, as Slay lit the candles and, standing within the circle at the side of the bed, pointed his finger upward and traced a series of invisible triangles and crossing lines. Renik Tasa Uberka Biasa Ikar Sonailan! The wizard shouted these words with guttural intensity. Slay lowered himself to his knees and bowed his barren head. A funnel wind rose impossibly from the hardwood floor beneath the bed and traced the circle of blood as it spun toward the ceiling, extinguishing the candles and chasing the light blanket and sheet from Malachi's bed. The inert boy suddenly began to twitch on the hospital bed. The monitor measuring his heart rate and blood pressure began to sound the jarring, warning song of abnormal bodily rhythms. He blinked ten times quickly, and cognition and sight illuminated his dead fish eyes for the first time in his life. His thin lips seemed to plump and quiver, as if some phantom shot of collagen had permitted them to function as more than an exit for saliva and mucus. He lifted his upper torso from its permanent supine position with no visible effort, his arms motionless at his sides. Malachi's freakishly flattened head began to swell slowly, like a deflated soccer ball being revived by an air compressor. His face, a set of nondescript features just a minute ago, suddenly coalesced into a visage reminding Aaron of his dead mother. Malachi lowered his head and turned robotically to examine the cords and tubes attached to his arms and chest. Raising both arms for the first time, he ripped the umbilical restraints away and threw them to the floor. His pale blue eyes scanned the room and found Aaron still standing near the doorway. Aaron couldn't tell which, a smile or a sneer, slowly curled his lips. Slay, what the hell is going on with my brother? He is now complete, young sir. He has fulfilled his role in the greatest story yet to be told. You should be so proud. Malachi has become the vessel through which our lord, Sonilan, the great tempter of hate among men, shall pave the way for the great change. Slay stood up, moved closer to the bed, and laid his hand reverently upon Malachi's leg. What in God's name are you talking about? God has very little to do with it, Mr. Sibley. Your brother was the perfect candidate for our great purpose. Possession is usually such a messy affair, you know. People with strong personalities make very poor bedfellows for demons. They're always trying to fight the takeover. All that disgusting vomiting and those awful physical contortions. Messy, messy, messy. But your brother had no brain to contend with. 
no soul with which to repel such a powerful preternatural being as Sonylan. And you, my dear young man, were so easy to convince, so trusting and, forgive me for saying so, so gullible. Of course, we're playing the long game here. Malachi will never be missed. My coven will nurture his physical body until he reaches maturity. Our lord will assume his place as the great divider of men, hastening the arrival of the apocalypse and Satan's ultimate victory. Don't you just love happy endings? The story isn't over yet, Mr. Slay! Aaron moved toward the wizard and picked up the athame from the floor where the Satanist had dropped it after slicing his palm. Slay held up his hands in a supplicant's gesture and smiled indulgently as Aaron held the knife to his throat and backed him up against the wall, covered with pictures of Christopher Robin and Tigger. With his attention focused on Slay, Aaron failed to hear the rustling of the urine-stained hospital gown or the sound of his baby brother's first steps approaching him from behind. Malachi's arm, guided by his talon-like fingernails, ripped through Aaron's back and out his chest, shattering bone while snatching his still-beating heart and cradling it in his hand for his dying brother to witness. Aaron's last moment of clarity as his empty chest shuddered a final time and his eyes lost their focus, revealed the role he was always destined to play in the tale of the brother with no brain. The heartless Aaron Sibley had become the Tin Man. You've just heard The Scarecrow by author Charles Williams. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and it's been delightful to start ringing in the Halloween season with all of you fine individuals. I hope that you'll join us here at the same time next week, because the season is just getting started after all, and it would be a true shame if you were to miss any of the frights we have in store for you. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show, and that means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, 
where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. As for me personally, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, username VikingGuitar, and also on Instagram as VikingGuitarProductions. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's episode was hosted by, and its featured tale performed by, yours truly, Eric Peabody. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda. Finalization by Craig Groshek and S.K. Brown. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? I do take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for future production. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to us to make sure that you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect any time and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to let us know how we're doing and leave a kind comment. Lastly, don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archives and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, you can hear more of my work on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. However, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Thank you.